to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. You know, every message that's preached is a needed message, but today it's going to be a message that um, I think kind of falls in line of a few things, especially with us as a ministry. Ministries are presented with obstacles, as you guys can imagine, and one of the, the things that I try to do and think about as obstacles are there, as in general in life, is trying to look for the opportunity as well, Right? And an obstacle that we've encountered at this ministry, of course, is um, the, the opportunity or, or the volunteering sometimes with people to take on the children. And the, if that be at Sunday school, if that be in the nursery, it, it is what it is. But the opportunity that I see with that is, is first and foremost, welcoming the kids into the gathering. And understanding and knowing that when we look at church and when we look at us coming together, we can sometimes get so caught up in trying to separate the children from us, which when you look in the Bible and you hear about Jesus teaching and speaking to kids, he, or teaching and speaking to the people, he's teaching and speaking to the generations. And another opportunity for that, that for me as a husband is my wonderful, beautiful wife gets to sit in church today as well. Because my wife does labor a lot. She volunteers her time a lot. And one of the, the greatest things that I get to do as a pastor when the opportunity presents itself is to be able to preach with my wife um, sitting in a pew. So today's message is going to be based around the context, the idea, and the mindset of remembering the position and the posture that we're called to have as Christians when it comes to entering the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus does a wonderful job in preaching and teaching this to us in, in Mark. But there's also passages, incidents, teachings, where he goes into and he's speaking about the rich young ruler as well. And these, these, these incidents, these teachings, they, they all go hand in hand. And I pray that this just be a sermon and a message for you guys. Once again, as I always do every Sunday, that it be a sense of a reminder, that it be a, a sense of maybe revelation for you guys as well. Because how often, I, by a show of hands, and I would raise mine with you, and I will, when we do church, how often do we see it that the adults sit in the pews and the kids leave to go somewhere else, right? How many of you have been a part of ministries? I'm not standing up here to chuck darts to say that's a bad thing. I'm not. But what I am up here to say is, is that, to me, it would be a beautiful and a healthy thing to be able to preach and teach to kids because these children act as a reminder for us, first and foremost, but also the power of God's Word is there and evident to where they can also be fed with their family. And with kids as well sitting there, kids are a wonderful accountability for adults. They are. And I was talking to my wife last night. I go, you know, how powerful would it be as we're sitting here and we're speaking and teaching to these adults, to moms and dads, about the Word of God, about being a leader in their household, because the church isn't going to save your family. God does that. But you are being used as the vessel, as a parent, to be the one to show the gospel, to live the gospel, to rear them up in the ways of the Lord. 
One of the things that I've always tried to stress with the church is God does not have grandchildren. So just because you are simply a Christian does not mean that indirectly your children are saved. Praise right? She's praising God. Yeah. <laughs> and even hearing the noises of a child in the church is, is a beautiful reminder. Like I sit there and think we can get so crusty and just like, okay, we got to keep the kids out. We got to do this. We got we got a time limit that we have to reach. And no, like Jesus spoke and preached to the generations right? And the kids are a reminder of that innocence, right? That we've all seemed to lose in a sense, correct? Right? This innocence that goes away, we become crusty, we become hard, we lose this ability to just be joyful, right? And I was watching Olivia, and as I clap, and Mariah's raising her hands, she looks up. It's like, that's the model, And she claps, and she raises her hands. She doesn't care what anybody thinks. No. It's a beautiful thing that we see and that we witness. And I'm not saying this will be an every Sunday thing. I'm not. But what I am saying, though, is this is something that I want to kind of temper you guys a little bit in service today. Okay? So, Olivia, you good? You ready? Olivia, thumbs up. Thumbs up. Ready? You ready? We're going to do this. She's like, yeah, whatever, dude. All right. But I I want to go into this and I want to link up these stories or these incidents in in the teaching of Jesus Christ because it's something that should strike a nerve in us all. Okay. So we're looking here at Matthew 10. We're starting off here at verse 13. I'm going to go ahead and read through the passage, the scriptures first. And then we're going to go back and we're going to unpack this. So we're starting off here at Matthew 10, verse 13, the little children and Jesus. Okay? Matthew 10, verse 13. Or Mark 10, I'm sorry. Mark 10. Thank you. I love hearing the what? Mark 10, verse 13. Yes, we also have stuff in the back. If you guys want kids to color, we have crayons. I should have announced that as well. Thank you, Jillian. You're awesome. All right, we there? Mark 10, 13. We're going to go ahead and read actually through verses 13 all the way down to verse 31 going through the rich in the kingdom of God. So Mark 10, 13 starts off with, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Going down here into verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery and you shall not steal. You shall not give false witnesses and you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, All these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. 
He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or friends for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, starting off here with verse 13, to give you guys a little bit of context. We're seeing this situation where mom's parents are bringing their children to Jesus. And in the Greek here, when we see the word children, it's actually being referred to as babies, right? Little babies. And in Jewish tradition, in Jewish culture, something significant would take place where they would pray for blessings over their kids, that they would receive this abundant blessings in life, overwhelming good things to take place because they felt like if their children was to receive this, it would put them on the path to obey the laws, which then would allow them to be saved or enter the kingdom, if you will. They were trying to earn their salvation by doing good things. Okay, This is Jewish tradition. So it would be like my wife and I praying for Hadessa, praying for Mariah. As they're growing up, they were not a part of religious tradition. We would just pray that God would bless them, allow them to have this abundant, beautiful life, so these things would shower on them. They knew it came from God because we were praying for it. And then they would make a choice to follow him. How would they follow him? They would follow his laws. But they had to do this. They had to earn it. So it was that, that law first mindset, okay? So you guys track it with me? This is why when the, the parents bring the babies to Jesus, what do the disciples do? Kids were not allowed to be involved with religious anything right? They weren't allowed to be around them. Parents, religious ceremonies, and all that. So even in the midst of the disciples being with Christ, following him, they still had that lawness, Jewish kind of temperament to them. Because, oh my gosh, what are these guys doing? Are these parents doing? They're bringing babies to this amazing teacher. So they rebuke the parents. But also when we look at this, I was telling my wife, we read stuff sometimes with just bland eyes. You guys have to understand that when they rebuke the parents, I want you to envision someone losing their mind on these disciples, flipping out on them. Like, what are you doing? Get away from, get away from, like just freaking out on them. But then what happens when Jesus sees this? What does Jesus do? It says he was indignant. But now I want you guys to envision someone being extremely angry. I want you to envision someone being frustrated by what he saw. Jesus wasn't just, we, we read this and we go, he was indignant. He was just maybe irritated. Like, no, let him, let him. No, Jesus was angry at the sight of this. And there's an illustration here that we see in, in, in numerous ways 
about Jesus telling us to let the children come to me. Now, a lot of us, we know and we recall when we speak this, that, that there's an innocence that we're called, right? This humility that children have, this joy that we see and that we hear and that we're reminded of. We, we, we read about it and we see it, but there's also the sense, too, of can babies take care of themselves? Is there anything a baby can do for itself? No. So there's this illustration here in this story or in this incident where Jesus is rebuking or, or he's indignant to the disciples because he knows it's a prime example and a prime opportunity to show the people, yes, there's an innocence and there's a joy. Babies are still sinful. They're born into it. The, the Bible speaks about these little bundles of joy are born into inequity. But Jesus is wanting to let the people know there's also a helpless state that's involved. Remember the audience he's speaking to. The people that are thinking you have to do all these things to get to heaven. He wants everyone to know and remind ourselves that you can't come to the kingdom of heaven unless you first realize there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do you need to be and understand that you're like a baby in this. You're like a helpless child, a helpless infant. And that's why he was so frustrated with his disciples and stopping that from taking place. We read even in the book of John where, where he's speaking about holding little babies in his arms. This is, a, this is an illustration that we can so easily look over. And I even went and discussed with my wife, too, that this is a passage I, I, was, I heard a pastor speak about, that he was on a panel and on a stage with like seven or eight other pastors. And that difficult question, I guess, came up to him. He said it wasn't difficult, where the question was asked by an audience member, where do babies go when they die? Where do they go? And you had all these pastors sit there, and it was almost like they were sidestepping around it. Well, we really don't. Well, it's hard to say. And this pastor stands there and he's like, wait a minute. Let's look at Mark 10, 13. Let's look at that. You want to know where babies go when they die? The illustration and, and the, the answer's right there. There's an innocence to them. So you think about a baby that dies in the womb or, or a child that's retarded or a child that has some kind of um, emotional intellect that's just degraded where they can't make decisions or they don't understand what's going on. I've always preached and taught in this church there is an age of accountability. We are born sinful. Every child is. I've used the analogy. People see babies and they think they're pretty and cute. They're kind of like a viper in a diaper kind of mindset. Like they come out screaming and crying and craving for something. Their faces are all curled up and all that stuff. They are encapsulated with flesh. The Word of God speaks about this. But people might sit there and go, well, wait a minute. If babies just go to heaven, that means they're automatically saved? No, no, it's not that. Eternal life is granted to the baby upon the baby's death. Eternal life is granted to the, the baby, if the baby dies in the womb, we read it. And I told my wife, you go back to Deuteronomy 139. You guys don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. This is the word of God here, even speaking about this. 
Deuteronomy 1.39. I'll start off with 37 here, okay? This is the rebellion against the Lord. Because, you are the Lord, because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You shall not enter it either, but your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him because he will lead Israel to inherit it. They're talking about the promised land. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. God looks at this mindset, this accountability factor that we have. There's a, po a point in our life where we do grow up and understand what is good and what is bad. But if you want to understand the doctrine of original sin, look at your kids. Told my wife another funny story. Pastor had to watch his grandchild, four-year-old grandchild. And he said that he was reminded every day that he had this grandchild of the doctrine of original sin, and everyone laughed. He goes, my grandchild would sit there, and every time I would tell her to do something, she always said she had to go potty. And I knew she was lying. And he's like, I know my daughter didn't teach her to do this before she came over to my house. Like, okay, grandpa's going to ask you to do something. You have to tell him you got to go pot. He's like, she didn't do that. All of you with kids know your kids can be buttheads. We were buttheads when we were kids. You didn't have to teach them to do anything wrong. But there is a sense of accountability and knowledge of what they are doing when they're doing it. Amen? So we look at this, though, back to the passage here. Jesus is wanting to remind us, yes, of innocence, of joy. But he's also wanting to remind you and I of just a simple, guess what? We are saved through faith and faith alone. And that faith is even a gift. Salvation belongs completely unto God. There's nothing that any of us can do to earn it. It is a helpless state in which we come. We are dead in sins and transgressions, Right? So in even speaking this and saying this, we now encounter a situation with a young ruler who hurries to Jesus. Almost to kind of counter a little bit about what he just taught, about babies and about children. This guy seems to have his act together, right? He's rich. And as he goes on to say, he's kept all the commandments. He's done what he needed to do. But he goes to Jesus and he starts right out of the gate. He says, and Jesus started on his way and a man ran up to him. This man was eager. Fell on his knees before him. He said, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right out the gate, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? Knowing that the man's standards of good differ from that in which the goodness of God states. How many of you have good dogs? Why are they good? Because they don't pee on the floor? No. Oh, okay. Why is, it, why is it a good dog? Companionship, right? How many of you have, have good kids? No one's hands went up. That's interesting. There you go. Well, they are most of the time. What he's... What he's trying to emphasize with this, though, is we all have these different standards, do we not? We're so quick in our culture to just go, that's a good man right there. Compared to what? Compared to who? Right? We in our own self develop these standards and these protocols of which we gauge goodness by. 
this young man runs up to Jesus and just refers to him as good teacher, right? Jesus simply stops and looks at him and just goes, why do you call me good? Knowing like this man's standard of good is that that's which, which is far different than that which God would call on. He says, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Okay, so now he's going and he's, he's indirectly answering the man's question. But he's going to check the man's heart in this. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. And you shall not defraud or honor your father and mother. This is referred to as the second table of the Decalogue. You know, in the first table where it's making reference more to not having false idols, you know, honoring God, all these things, what you would consider more of the difficult stuff. Jesus is going to, if you had to say an easier part of the Ten Commandments, the things that you and I could easily boast about, Michelle, I haven't killed anyone, right? You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I honor my mother and father to my standards. I haven't committed adultery. The, the way that we are to other people now. So Jesus is going to the easier part of this. And of course, this man with a sense of pride and all that stuff gets kind of full of himself. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Almost indirectly putting himself on the standard of good in which Jesus just declared that God holds that title. No one's good except God alone. Isn't it interesting that he's so quick to just say, well, I've done those things too. And when you look back to the fall and all that, we, we, we all, in a sense, have our own God complex. This is taught a lot as well, why we love motivational stuff, because we want to hear about how good we are as people. And to teach and to preach against that is a hard thing. It's a hard thing to hear. People don't want to hear that. Yeah, we, we were capable of doing good things. We're capable of being nice. But Jesus wants to sit here and truly express to this young man who's seeking to have eternal life that there's elements here that you are so far distant from, maybe because of your pride, maybe because of your wealth, that you need to understand. There's a heart concept to this. So Jesus looked at him. And you guys ever catch what he says after he looked at him? He loved him. He loved him. He showed compassion to this young man. It wasn't like he was mocking him. Jesus is all-knowing ways like, oh, you silly kid. Like, you got it wrong, dude. No. He felt compassion. He felt this sense of, oh my gosh, there's these barriers in front of you that are preventing you from seeing the essence and the beauty of the news that I bring, the peace of the news that I bring, the freedom of the news that I bring. What's that freedom? Romans 3.23, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. No one on earth is good, not one. There's only one who's good, and that's God and God alone. Now, people might hear that message and think, horrible, scary things, but to me, that's a freeing message. The equity that we have as people is sin. We're all linked and connected through it. And Jesus is wanting to hit home with this in his teaching. He loved him. He showed compassion. One thing you lack. One thing. You need to go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then... 
Come follow me. He was able to look at this man's heart and see the barrier that was there. There's a barrier that was present that was preventing him from following Jesus the way that Jesus calls for all of us to follow him. What was that barrier, church? It was money. It was wealth. It was stature. Remember, as I just read to you up in the, in the, the story of li- the little children in Jesus, this teaching here that he's given us too, Jewish tradition taught us and said to the Jews that when you were blessed in life with things and stuff, that it must have meant that God himself was blessing you, which would then draw you to go and follow him that much more in discipline, that much more in belief. And Jesus was pushing that to the side. No, that, that's not what this is about. If anything, those comforts that you have might be the very thing that's preventing you from following me the way that I need you to follow me. This isn't him saying that everyone in this room that has money has a problem. He's looking at this young man's heart because guess what? This young man's barrier was money, but guess what? Poor people have barriers too. Poor people have barriers. But this young man, this individual's barrier was money. All of us sit in this room today with barriers in our life. Barriers that the Lord calls for us to check. Is this a matter, once again, about being perfect? It is not. But it's a matter about you being honest and trusting in the love and the mercy of God by coming before him with those barriers, repenting of that, and saying, I need you to take this because I want to truly follow you the way that you're calling me to follow you. And it's not an easy thing. But those songs, right? You're everything, everything, everything that I need. How many of us truly believe that? We live in a society and a culture that tries to influence us to say that when things are good, it means God's looking down on you with favor. And in actuality, what the teaching's saying is, it's the stuff that you got that's making you feel good that could possibly be preventing you from running the race with the Lord. And this isn't Pastor Josh's words. This is the teaching of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you. He says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. We just got done preaching about this. What's the hope that we have, church? For a day that's yet to come, we'll live an eternal life with Jesus Christ. Paradise. Treasures in heaven. Who's taking their boats with them when they die in this room? Who's taking the barriers that they have that's preventing them from running the race with Christ? As it says in Hebrews, we need to break free of those very things that entangle us and ensnare us from running the race. How many of you are taking these things with you when you die? I have the answer. None of you. It's just stuff. I've heard money referred to as the great everything and the great nothing. We are raised in a culture to say, go and pursue it, but it's odd when we die, it does nothing for us. Does it not? So Jesus wants to hit home with this. So as I'm speaking this to you guys, I want you guys to envision those barriers. We all have them. We all have them. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. That was the barrier for him. 
Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Guys, whatever your barriers are, whatever your idols are, whatever your little gods are in your life, those are going to be the determining factors of even what you consider to be with wealth and riches. It might not just be money. The story that my wife and I have, have told and I, I brought up to you guys before is, is that when my wife and I first got married, my wife, and she will even say it about me, my wife was my idol. And I was hers. So when you come to the Lord and you're like, all right, God, lay it on me. What's my barrier? What do I need to look at here and really just give to you and trust in you and how I have this relationship with it? Do I need to remove the barrier? Or do I need to have just a healthy attachment? Lay it on me. And that was not an easy thing. But when I stopped and looked at it and I thought about it, oh my gosh. God wasn't telling me to get rid of my wife. Thank you, Lord. He wasn't telling me that. But he was having me check my heart and where I was placing her in regards to how I was serving him. And here's the beauty about allowing the Lord to be Lord over your life, to not be stiff-necked, right? To not have that yoke on you and just curl up like an oxen and just sit there and not let him... By allowing him to be Lord of your life, he will make you, by the transformation of your heart, the individual that you need to be to the people that you're with in the relationships that you have. I was so caught up in certain elements and things with my wife. Like I was so focused on, I just don't want to be like my dad. I don't want to be like him as a husband while all having my own faults that I developed. I want to just sit there and make sure that Jelaine's just always this, this, and this. But at the end of it, it was more so for my pride and comfort. My wife is a smart woman. She's a tough woman too. I love her because of that. But I had to sit there and look and think to myself, like when I'm blessed with a woman like this, am I just wanting to keep peace for my sake or for hers? Or am I actually leading her with a kind hand? In my own flesh, in my own right, I didn't know how to lead a woman like this. But by the Lord working on me and me giving myself to the Lord, He's taught me how to do that. It presents struggles. It presents trials. But my wife and I have grown through that experience, through those situations. This is why we always emphasize and push people in their marriages to not allow God just to ordain their marriage, but to regulate it as well. Doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. Marriage is work, right? But it's sacrifice. It's sacrifice to no end. And here's the deal. I will sacrifice anything for my wife. That's how Christ loved his bride as well. I listen because that's how Christ loved his bride as well. Am I perfect? She'll remind you and tell everyone, no, he ain't perfect. He's not. But there's no shadow of a doubt in her brain, though, I would believe. My wife knows that doesn't, or doubts that I don't love her or that I don't cherish her. She knows that I do. Because I do. 
So when he looks at this in verse 24, carry on, he says, The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Dave, who then can be saved? This is nuts. Nikki, who, who can be saved? And Peter or Jesus looked at them and said, well, Man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. You remember the interaction with Jesus and Nicodemus, right? Truly, I tell you, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. What does that mean, church? I'm speaking about this stuff. I'm telling you about my interactions with my wife. This isn't a matter of changing behavior, behavior modification, Chris. This isn't a matter of you writing down your strengths and your weaknesses and going on Tuesday, I'm going to focus on this weakness, and on Thursday, I'm going to... It isn't about that. It's about as what we're reminded in the book of Jeremiah, that God will remove your heart of stone, and he will replace it with a heart of flesh. Church, you need a heart transplant. This is the only way it's going to take place as a Christian. Your heart needs to change. This isn't about outward deeds. This isn't about any of that. It's about your heart being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And this is evident in what? The fruitfulness of how we live as Christians. The the intentionality that we live as Christians. This is why fellowship is critical. This is, once again, while having kids sit in the pews, they hear Pastor Josh speaking this, they can go home to their parents and go, Mom, Dad, where's your fruit at? <laughs> like, I sit there and I think about that. Like, yay, like, th- this is why this is a beautiful thing. It is a fruitfulness factor, a heart change, not a behavior modification. So when Jesus says this, that, Michelle, can you transplant your own heart? Can you change your own heart? Linda, Nikki, can you guys do this? Can you sit down and bear down with it and just go, okay, I'm going to make sure that this is why we feel guilty half the time, is it not, church? Man, I did great in the month of June, but July, holy smokes, I dropped the ball. Some of you maybe have behavior modification calendars or something on your refrigerator, like, Okay, this book says I need to be more gentle and more kind. No, you need to go to the Lord with these struggles. You are being sanctified daily. Sanctified daily. You're you're a saint in the eyes of God. You are his child. Bask and walk in that freedom. Understand and know that if you slip today, you're forgiven today. But that salvation and that grace does not give you permission to continue to sin because you who are the Christian, you who are the saved, have put sin to death. You have raised your hand to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, sin no longer has power over me. I am a child of God. Amen? Amen. You guys have to get this. This is freedom. This is grace. Walk in it. So when Jesus is sitting here and he's saying this, that, With man, this is impossible. Stop trying to do it yourself. But with God, all things are possible. You remember the man that had the crippled hand, right? What does Jesus say to him? Stretch out your hand. What are you talking about? I can't do that. This isn't me standing up here saying that when you do this, that Jesus is going to... No, I'm not saying that. What I'm wanting to let you know is Jesus was performing and showing you 
that in your mind, in your understanding, these things are impossible. But when it comes to your salvation and your heart changing with God and God alone, the one who made you, all things are possible. You have to believe that as a Christian. And I love Peter's response, and I said this to my wife, because we can do this so easily. So Jesus has laid the law out here, literally. And Peter, almost in this proud way, says, we've left everything to follow you. Like, you're just talking about those people. But look at what we've done. We've abandoned everything to follow you. So keep that in your mind, Jesus. Like, remember that. Jesus, verse 29, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. Along with persecutions. Now we can read that passage and I can make that as prosperous sounding as possible. Chris and Dave, if you leave all these things, God's going to provide you a hundredfold of the very things you walked away from because you did it for God. It's kind of, once again, can, can easily go parallel with what, once again, the Jewish teaching was. As we pray for our kids, we pray for these good things to happen. When these good things happen, it'll indirectly motivate them to follow God because they attribute the blessing to him. Jesus is not saying that here. He's saying that if if these barriers or these things that are noticed, these relationships that you've held while you were of the world, but now you're simply in it. If you've noticed and seen that the Lord has called you to step away, that you love him more than you love the world, that you're not friends with the world, because when you're friends with the world, you're automatically at enmity with who? God. He's wanting to teach and stretch this. He's simply saying that, You leave these things of the world in my name, I will bless you with these things of the church and the called out. But you also see what he says at the end? It's also in the midst of what? Persecution. Guys, the world's not going to guide you and comfort you enough through you being persecuted as a Christian. There's only one body on this planet of Jesus Christ. It's the church. And you're going to need other saints, other brothers and sisters, other soldiers of the Lord to be there to encourage you. He will give you provisions to soldier through this life, working the harvest field, proclaiming the gospel from the ends of the earth. He will give you those things. He's not going to make your life necessarily more comfortable because comfort leads to a sense of complacency. We know about that. All of us do. Why would I unhinge from my lazy boy of life to go do something that might bring me persecution? That doesn't make sense. Well, who are you doing this for? Why are we alive? Our lives are simply to give God glory and honor. We just covered that last week in everything that you do. Are we perfect at it? No, we are not. But where does your default lie? David was seen as a man after God's own heart. David screwed up, which David screwed up a lot. And I'm not saying you guys are David, but when the dude messed up, who did he cry to? He cried to the Lord. 
We can live in a society and a culture where we screw up, even as a Christian, and go, well, you know what? Deep down, I'm, I'm really a good person. It's true that he'll forgive you. But does that forgiveness lead to, re- lead to repentance? Or does it lead to an encouragement to continue to sin? So when he goes on and he, he makes this, this you, you leave these things for me for the gospel in the present age, you're going to get a hundredfold of these things along with persecution. And in the age, guess what we get, church? What is it again that we're living for? What is it? Eternal life. That's it. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And I close with this. When you're looking at 29 through 31, you've got to remember, who is Jesus speaking to? Speaking to his disciples. Remember what Peter just said, we've left everything to follow you, Lord. Jesus, I feel like, is wanting to remind all of us to check our pride when it comes to being a Christian. When it comes to us being a pastor, or us being faithful and going to church, us doing whatever. He's wanting to, he's wanting to simply sit here and, and lay something out that you might start off like this, even with me. I'm going to give you guys an example. But it doesn't mean you're going to finish it like that. Because Peter's so quickly, we've left everything to follow you. What a wonderful teacher for Jesus to go, well, I'm going to give you a little bit of a breakdown here because those who are last will be first and those who are first will be last. What 12, out of the 12, who, who betrayed Jesus? Judas. So he was a part of the initial 12 that we saw and he betrayed the Lord. And then we look at the story of Paul. What was Paul doing in the midst of all of this? He was killing Christians. And then now we read these these teachings even from Paul in the New Testament. Jesus is just wanting us as a church to always keep ourselves humble. That's like the baseline as a Christian. Humble hearts. Children, right? Innocence. Like, we have to keep that composure. This is a day-in, day-out thing if you will, faith. This is our lives. This is our being. And I love that he just wanted to to close with that. He's teaching us about our things, our provisions, our, our wants. I pray to you guys as a church that you just simply go to the Lord and you pray about your barriers. That you remember what you're called to come to him like as a helpless state. There's nothing you could do. That's the beauty of his grace, right? It's the beauty of his mercy. It's just through faith and faith alone. Amen.